0: Welcome everyone to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever evolving NHS and digital industries best practices, such as this podcast that we're running this morning. Um, my name is Emma, and today am I, I am your host. Today on the panel, we have three NHS leaders from the Yorkshire and North East re- region. We have Carl, David and Joe. Um Before we move into the intros, I'd just like to add that the views expressed by guests are their own and not necessarily reflect the official position on policy of the organisation. So, yeah, we'll just kick things off with some intros. So, Carl, if you want to go first, tell everyone a little bit more about you are, what you do, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Carl Money, so I'm Head of Performance Informatics at least, New york Partnership, NHS Trust. Um, previously, I spent time at NHS England and NHS Digital, working um, primarily with mental health data. Um, I guess I took a bit of a rambling route into informatics. Uh, my background's in forensic psychology, um, and I kind of fell into
2: um, informatics during a, a stay at another mental health trust.
0: Thank you, Carl. David, over to you next.
2: Hi, hi I'm David Sim, Head of Business Intelligence and Data Warehouse. Uh, I head up exactly what I just said. Um, uh, I've been in the NHS for about 13 years now, I think. Um, previously, I had my own company doing kind of this sort of stuff, but but not as much as I do now with analytics. But uh, yeah,
3: perfect. Thank you, David. And finally, Joe, over to you. Yeah. I'm Joe Dent. I'm Business Intelligence Development Manager at Tees Eskmealy Valley's NHS Trust, and I've been with the organisation for just over 22 years
0: perfect thank you everyone um all right we'll just dive straight into the questions then so the first question um, we're going to discuss is the nhs long-term plan provides a straightforward directive stating that digital services be shifted to the cloud except for cases where there is clear justification against it what are the barriers opportunities associated with implementing this directive so carl i'm going to come to you first on this one if that's okay
1: yeah. So, um, I think the, the key challenge for me is around skills. Um, we are in the process of moving some of our, some of our SQL stack over in, into Azure and, um, the, the challenge has been understanding kind of how that needs to happen migrating some of our existing processes into, into Azure in this case. Um, Well, we've had some successes. Microsoft have a learn platform that anybody in the NHS can access. um, And there's tons of stuff on there around Azure um, and training and things. So we've been really able to exploit that. Um, And it's it's free as well. So that's that's been of help to the organisation. There's huge benefits to the cloud. um, And I'm I'm really, I I, I totally agree with the directive. um, But yeah, there's just a challenge primarily around skills for me, I think.
0: Thanks, Carl. David, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so... um...
2: We have worked with a company last year um, to try and get a prototype of part of our data warehouse up in the cloud. Um, so we got we used our community uh, system and uh, tried to put that process up. So it it was using an SSIS package that just calls stored procedures within SQL. Um, And it's quite a complex one. It also imports the data from from the actual system, et cetera. Um, um, And it was written in SSS, like I said, but we needed to change that, uh, adapt that, and put it in the cloud. And so we had to rewrite the SSS into a zero data factory. Um, But we got so there was a company that helped us do that. Um, So, we that was a success. Then the second year, we had another go at it to try and look at putting the whole of the data warehouse. The first bit was just a prototype. And we've, we had a few barriers in the fact that our server wasn't quite as up-to-date as it should be. If it was, it, it was easier for us to, to to link up to our local data set and, and put that into the cloud. One of the big problems that we have is that the fact that um our data repository which is the back end of our epr system is on site and not in the cloud um which so some of our worries would be linking to that that the amount of data that it updates in the data repository because it is alive it's it's fantastic really because it is live um but the problem is getting a copy of that in the cloud as well ideally if, if that was in the cloud and then we could put our data warehouse in the cloud it would make it a lot easier i know there are there are things that can be done uh to do this um some of the things that if if we did manage to do it and we did link to the local version there are always um costs involved of course the egress and ingress costs of of pushing the data up getting the data back um so that was also a, a little bit of a worry because it was quite difficult to try and understand how much it is going to cost really um so, so some more barriers what we have what we've thought about were data security um mm. and the privacy of the data being in the cloud but um i'm not so worried about that the, my main worry is this kind of similar to what carl said is the knowledge about the because you're having to learn a whole new system, and it is absolutely huge the the amount of knowledge that is needed for the cloud. And it's and the, only yesterday, there's something else has come out of the, it in Power BI, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what's this now? So, um, so yeah, and there's as always, there's 10 different ways of doing it, um, so that yeah, the skills certainly is a is something that we need to think about um network reliability if everything was in the cloud that'd be another not a it's the wrong term barrier um, but it's a challenge um but so currently i'm if everything was in the cloud i'm not sure that it our current network would be um, good enough, for the the connection. Um, I know the Microsoft, because it's a zero that we use. using. So Microsoft use something called uh, Express Link, um, which which will hopefully make it a lot better um, once everything is in the cloud. It's more the bandwidth when everybody's accessing the cloud from. which If everything is in the cloud, there will be. Um, so looking at you know getting all the data back down. Thankfully, the the processing um, the processing uh, would be done in the cloud, and that that would be definitely be an opportunity to use. So, some of the opportunities from cloud is the efficiency, um, the scalability, um, uh, cost effectiveness. Of course, whether I've got a question mark at the side of that at the moment, like what I've just mentioned, I'm not sure it is the cost is going to be uh, the cheapest or most expensive way it's quite difficult to understand that at the moment um an example of what we've got is uh within our epr system we've got what we what we call our document loader um so in the epr system uh the application specialist can go in and create uh documents i guess uh so that the nothing's on paper and everything's in, in the cloud the problem is that this 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 document it all goes into one ginormous table, which is huge, and we currently have in our fact table uh th- 333 million rows, and it is just growing exponentially. Um, so we we're, we're a little bit worried about where that's going. But one of the opportunities we may have is to use the cloud to put to put this in into a data lake or whatever. But then again, we need to understand how we can get the data out once it's in there. Um, so that's, that's also some, another learning curve that we'll have to understand. Um, one good thing about a data lake that it, uh, it does like unstructured data, which our document loader is unstructured. Um, but then we'd have to get it out and understand how we can pull it out and everything else.
0: Thanks, David. Carl, have you got some thoughts there?
2: Um, I think we have similar challenges.
1: So we have, um, we're implementing an electronic document management system um, for lots of our live data from our API. Our API is cloud-hosted, but our warehouse is um, on-prem. So it's kind of the the, the reverse of the view, I guess. to an extent, David, um, but we do have an archive of, of old um, old attachments from our previous clinical record system that we are looking at using something like blob storage in, in Azure to make that much easier and much faster to kind of search through. So, yeah, plenty of opportunities to, to get around some of those challenges. But, but you're right, it, it's not necessarily cost-effective, but the space we're saving within our estate and the, the fact that the servers are patched automatically and, and that's all done for you is kind of – it's not necessarily uh, – it's, it's not straightforward, is it, to um to work out the, the, the cost savings from it?
3: Thanks, Carl. Jo, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I'm just interested in terms of um, thoughts from David and Carl on um, the kind of um, knowledge kind of gap that we've got in terms of the cloud and that skill set and how you're addressing it. I know, Carl, you mentioned using the Microsoft platform for, for training. Mm-hmm. Is that enough, or are you having to bring in um, experts and thinking about the cost of that? Um, it's been enough for us
1: at, at the moment. Um, some of our estate as say, is, is already on the cloud, so we have some resource within our IT team more broadly around managing th- those cloud resources. Um, but in terms of that migration and, as David was saying, moving SSIS packages from SSIS into Data Factory, um, the, the training there we think is, is enough. Um, but there are tons of courses out there um, that they are relatively expensive um, for, for what they are, I think, which is why we look to Microsoft Learn first, obviously. Um but I'm I feel confident that we'll have the skills within the team to to implement it. It's just around making the space available to do the migration, but be bring everyone up to speed in terms of managing that as
2: your warehouse once it's up there. There are so many just there's, there's so many different facets in, to this. Really, right? yeah. you know the security of it, um, and then the data warehouse. It, we kind of have to, and then even in data warehousing, there are there are so many different ways of, of 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 creating a data warehouse now. And, what storage types do you use and everything so it is uh yeah it's quite complex you know you have to it, it's knowing which areas you need to to learn as in everything did there's so much comes out there's so many things to learn it's just you kind of just can't learn everything you just have to try and focus on one thing um yeah there's some more opportunities but i'll just like to mention if that's okay um, so, Yeah, absolutely. Um, so absolutely so Putting everything in the cloud um, would make collaboration a lot easier, especially with you know the ICS and uh, Cbs um, joined up working, um, which is of course is is becoming more and more prevalent in the NHS. Um, understanding patient f- that can go from one hospital to another uh, and, sh- and sharing patient data within reason, of course. Um, so collaboration is is a big one there um especially again in population health as well that's another thing um the scalability and flexibility of of putting things in the cloud so um when the processes are at, at the highest i guess you can turn it up or you can turn it down obviously that will save costs so you don't have to have it uh on full power all the time you can uh, you can turn some of the processing down uh, which is um hopefully a cost saver again in in the future, um, one of the big, big is really for me um, is the artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities. Uh, there's a lot to um, get involved in. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, really, and um, see what we can do and try and predict. Um, of course, I think it's going to change how the NHS works eventually. It, it Obviously, um, predictive technologies is coming in. Into the NHS more and more, but um, being able to process such large amounts of data is probably something locally you can't do as well as in the cloud. Um, backup and disaster recovery, it, I guess, would be easier in 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 the cloud, or, or at least there's less pressure on local teams to be able to look after that. Um, the upgrades. Um, it often causes quite a few issues having to upgrade version of SQL from one version to another or changing, upgrading or changing the server, upgrading the server. Um, but of course, in the cloud, um, that should should be seamless because <laughs> uh, they just update their systems and, and theory and hopefully uh, our data warehouse would just, I guess, go with the flow and, and update with it.
0: Uh- Thank you, David. I feel like, I mean, I, by, by all mean, no means, I'm no expert in kind of data in the cloud, but it sounds like this could probably be like a topic of, you know, of itself with so many kind of different questions that you guys mm-hmm. have had. But um, no, that was great. Thank you for that, everyone. Um, we'll move on to the second question then. Um, so number two, is it's important for the NHS to be data driven, but that data needs to be consistent. How can we move to a single source of truth within um, I think we've changed it slightly, haven't we, this one? I'm going to say mental health services, but I think it's changed. I've not updated it, so apologies. <laughs> um, Joe, we'll come round to you first on the, this one, if that's okay.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, good question, because I think for quite a few years we've talked about the single version of the truth um rather than the single source of the truth Um, so for our organization our single source of the truth is our integrated information center um because i know we've had um, challenges previously where data is coming from different places and the confusion that causes Um, so in terms of nationally um single um source of the truth would have to be our data sets um, there's some challenges there in terms of they're not contained within one data set so we make many submissions um including daily sit reps which are a hangover from covid which' um, still to um still need to submit in um so it, it's interesting isn't it' so I am intrigued from um, David's perspective about the acute providers and in terms of data sets that, uh, that you guys have and how that differs from mental health services because I always feel like it is the mental health, uh, the MHSDS um, is our focus. Um, we're interested in terms of um, from an acute sector what what that means. Um, it's, I think it's really difficult to get that single um version of the truth from one data set because a data set is just that. Um, You don't get the context around the data. So some national analysis on the data doesn't actually give you the full story. So controversially, would you suggest starting from scratch and actually building things on um, clinical pathways and processes because the data should fall out of that Um, and, and then we flow a data set um, I do feel that's really controversial considering how much work has gone into the MHSCS over the uh, years, but uh, why not? Um, In terms of the data set as well, uh, as it stands at the moment, I do feel like the um, innovations that services have, so obviously nice guidance changes um, in terms of um, encouraging people to be collaborative working, thinking about the NHS future platform and how that really encourages collaboration between organisations and how clearly those services are changing so the data that we collect is changing. but the um, data sets are not reactive enough for good reason to capture all of that. So I always feel like we're kind of like on the back foot. So locally, data-wise, we are very rich, um, but from a national perspective, that doesn't always translate.
0: Thanks, Joe. Um, David will come round to you next on this one.
3: Yeah, so obviously
2: I head up the data warehouse here at Rotherham. So... I think if you've got a good data warehouse that sits on all this data and every system and every process you've got goes into the data warehouse in that that's certainly the way that we have done it. Um, we, so we have data warehouses, we use the Kimball methodology. So as Carl mentioned later, earlier, we've got, we have got, um, what called fact tables, which, are, is the, um, activity. Uh, based over time, and what we have in there are lots of keys, um, which then point to what we call our dim tables or dimension tables. So in our dimension tables, we will have one dimension for date, and it and in the dimension uh, for date, it will have every single date. It'll have uh, the ordinals. It'll have the, um, the, the if it's a weekend flag or um, but look, but anything you can think of to do with a date, the day, the number of day, they, uh, and so we have every single one, uh, in one dimension. So then every single date from the fact table points to a key in the dimension. And and that is the single source of truth. So we've also got for every single, well, the dimension can think of age, uh, attendance type, um, uh, diagnosis procedures they're all they're all in their own dimension so they're not duplicated items um and then even this the, the community system that we use um they also use the same dimension so they also use the dim age they also use the dim patient um adding patient slightly different in the fact that it's a slowly, slowly changing dimension and we do that um based on if the patient changes at either the home address or GP address. Um so we've got a history of that. And then what we do, so we might have say I'm in it. Um I might have five rows. Um I may have changed my home address or um my GP address five times. But then there will be a flag in there saying is latest. And then that is the latest one. Uh the reason why we do that is so that we can keep track of um patient addresses for costing and um when uh I'm called forgot i'll carry on <laughs> uh <laughs> uh yeah um train for right now.
0: it's fine david don't worry <laughs> put that bit out <laughs> it's fine, Don't worry. Get all, honestly our marketing team are so good at editing all like the all the like <laughs> silences like bits of yeah it's absolutely fine so don't worry about it <laughs> do you want to add anything else david
2: oh no, let me just uh, let me remind myself <laughs> where I've, I've, I've gone off what i wanted the, what we're talking about so a single source of truth we're talking about the the, the dimensions uh yeah so going back to the single source of truth so we, what we also have coming out of our data warehouse uh we have um what we call our cubes um don't know if you know what cubes are but they it's like a It's a a hidden black box of data. um, And um, you can access the cubes via Excel or Power BI. um, And then you can, the reason why it's in a big box of data um, is so that it can be sped up using indexes. And it's all done hidden, but it makes it a lot faster. So you can bring in count of admissions or something against the date, and then bring in a clinician. And it, it pulls back the data super, super quickly. So that's all based on our fact and dimension tables. Um, mm-hmm. so we actually have the old, older types of cubes, the multidimensional. Then we switched to what we call tabular cubes. And now the new version used in Power BI called data sets, which are just pretty much exactly the same as tabular cubes. So we now use data sets in Power BI. But that allows us to um, then connect all our reporting to, uh, using ssrs or power bi or excel to these data sets and bring back whatever data we need again it's all from the single source dim and fact they the commissioning data sets again come from the dim and facts um every single <laughs> everything we use comes from the dim and facts um uh so we're slowly getting more and more into the data warehouse uh to enable us to do to do a send everything we need really
0: thank you david and carl over to you
1: i think that that was really helpful kind of technical overview david i guess what struck me coming from working nationally for almost a decade to back to a provider is that nobody knows what the truth is we talk about a single version of the truth but our commissioners have a very different data request to our board in some cases to our exec team which is miles different to what our frontline services kind of view as really important to them so what was really struck me is how how we've been trying to square that circle and have, it's a terrible phrase and I hate it, but that kind of ward to board view of data that everybody's looking at the same thing. And that's been really challenging. Um, I I am going to push back a little bit on Joe's points and I appreciate she said she was controversial. Um, I'm probably not the best person. Uh, I'm probably quite, I I am quite biased. I think the MHSG is is, is a really flexible data set, but you're absolutely right. That doesn't mean that it, it can improve. And I really like your idea of kind of having pathway making it much more kind of pathway specific and SNOMED helps with that um the the MHS is a really good kind of skeleton if you like and the challenge for me is we don't have many of those pathways really clearly articulated we've got EIP but that's because it was a really big kind of national push in 2016 when the data set launched other than that I mean there's community transformation but that has its own challenges around yeah. everybody working together in a way that the NHS just doesn't isn't used to doesn't, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. The, the NHS just doesn't work like that um financially kind of organizationally yeah Data governance, data flows—it, it, it's a fantastic approach. But there's some seismic shifts need to happen, and I don't think that was particularly well understood at the time. Um, but yeah, once once you get that 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 kind of common view of what it is you mean by the truth, you can then look and kind of use, as they were saying, kind of using ITB resources to to benchmark and encouraging uh, commissioners and others to use those national sets So. That then frees up our time to better support frontline services rather than feeding the kind of the beast um, from a central perspective, which which is quite ironic, having been that that central beast um, for for many many years. Um, but it's by encouraging people to kind of make use of the data that's already there. It, it may not be great, but a really good way of improving that data is to use it rather than it going to a black hole. Thanks, Carl.
0: David, I'll come round to you first.
2: Yeah. Um, so just something that you mentioned then, Carl, about the um, challenges from the ICB. Uh, so we obviously every trust gets challenges about well, where this costing is meant to be allocated to and what have you. So um, what we did was we created um, a comparison database. Uh, so we we downloaded the 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 sus um, and sam data from NHSE. and then with that we uh, we've got a process where we compare what data we've got to because doing that we know exactly what the icb are going to download so we've got this tool where we compare it and anything that just looks a little bit different we then can fix it before um the icb pick us up pick up on it so we can see the challenges and that's how we eradicated all our challenges in with that
3: thanks david joe come back round to you yeah, um, I was really interested to see what Carl's reaction would be to um, the controversial um, suggestion about the MHSDS. So So um, I was pleased to ask the, uh, to say that. Um, I think you're right though, Carl, it has got that flexibility and I think SNOMED codes definitely afforded us some more manoeuvrability, but I think there is some significant changes required like you suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, just coming back to your comment about the ICBs using the data and actually it's not a black hole and that it is useful, otherwise what is the point? Yeah. Um, and I think there is some work to be done and some more collaboration to be um, forged I suppose with the ICBs um, and the sort of commissioning support units that support them in terms of understanding that data. So going back to my point about really understanding the context of the data and I think you know mm. the providers are the experts in what the context of that data is so there needs to be more that of collaborative working to ensure that people have got the same understanding um and that's where your truth comes in um so yeah I thought that was um really interesting so you can keep your image Carl. This
1: it's not mine mine. way I'm just a super fan yeah um I guess the David's point was a really good one around using those national data flows locally. Yeah. So again, we have measures around kind of sensitive folks, so when people discharge from inpatient services, that, that somebody gets in touch with them to make sure that, that they're okay. It's a really, really important suicide prevention measure. We have a local measure, but then there's a measure in the MHSTS that does exactly the same thing. What we're doing is looking to, as David was saying, incorporate those two flows together. So there is one version of that measure that's used across the trust and then kind of nationally as well. Um, unlocking the icb in particular with their use of these national data sets is really really important because then you can do linkage we have silos of data across ahs um even with even within organizations you have, you have silos but we i can only see my trust data but well, the icb can then link that to the the a and e services and leads the um sorry that's really off point emma sorry sorry um no <laughs> let, 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 let me rewind for purposes um so the, the icb are really important here because they can then use data across those data sets and link things together. So we can see, oh, tons of people are going to A&E with mental health problems. What's our crisis team doing? How have these people been seen by a crisis team before? What happens to them directly afterwards? And linking the, that, that data together. And that's where the ICBs, I think, have a really, really important place in terms of that, that population health, broader kind of pathway view. And I encourage them to use the MHSDS and other data sets. Um, it really helps unlock that potential.
0: Thank you, Carl. Yeah. Joe, do you, I was going to come back around to you, Joe, just the final point on this one before we move yeah. on to the next
3: question, if that's okay. I just think that that linkage is massively important. When we're talking about community transformation, we're talking about linking and the whole system approaches, and you've got different providers submitting different data and trying to link all that together to give you your picture of what's happening is so important.
0: <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thank you, everyone. Some great discussion there. Uh, move on to kind of question number three then. Um, so, slightly different kind of angle i think um but no i really like this question so thinking about your career and current role within nhs data what advice would you give to someone who is thinking about taking a role within data and digital services within the nhs um so i think i'm going to come around to carl first on this one
1: (laughs) um i say go for it absolutely (laughs) um so lots of times people are put off by the more technical aspects of of our roles but you you can pick up coding skills. The, the 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 core syntax for most kind of languages is 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 fairly easy to understand. The complexity lies within the data. So I wouldn't want people to be put off and thinking, oh I'm not very technical. I think it's much more important for me that you have that kind of that inquisitive mind and that curiosity and some of the more softer skills um to kind of go out and engage with people and then kind of build inf- build informatics that, that mean something but then kind of are used. The worst thing for me is that we spend time building building dashboards building reports that just kind of sit there whereas what we want to do is to build something that's engaging that makes people's jobs easier and that for me coding is an element of it um, and that's a really important bit but there's also those those kind of softer skills around kind of yeah being really curious with data and trying to understand what the data shows rather than just kind of sending somebody a chart say oh this this bit looks a bit interesting have you thought about kind of the impact of, of x y and z on on this bit and that kind of then helps i'm full of terrible analogy, but it kind of helps tell the story of, of the data as well and it kind of yeah it makes it more engaging rather than just being a, a chart in a powerpoint that somebody's copied
2: and pasted from somewhere else
0: thanks carl david i will come around to you next
2: yeah um i, I would certainly uh, I, I agree with carl and I, I love i love my job so and i've done it for long enough now it's great <laughs> and one of the things i do love about it is that the rate of change um some people might be put off by that i quite I find it quite exciting. Um, you've always got to keep on top of the technology of of of, of changes coming nationally from NHSE. Um, to think you know different rules and different uh, things coming into the, the hospital. Right to reside seems to change every so often, <laughs> quite often. Uh, so you have to adapt. You have to be very adaptable to to work in the NHS. Um, so that's certainly one thing. Um, I, I would. That's one thing Um, I would the data science part of it. I think it's changing quite a lot. Uh, And I think data science is becoming more and more prevalent in our roles. Um, It's quite difficult for the people that are kind of used to the old ways of maybe using Excel and what have you. Um, It was quite a challenge to because um, especially in my last two roles, from that from excel to uh microsoft microsoft sql um getting people to start writing in 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 a language you know uh that was quite difficult but now we've got python and r um which is more of the data science uh tools um that we're now using uh so that is a challenge and it, it's a big one really um hopefully the universities are taking note and starting to teach this a little bit more um another thing about um uh if i were to advise someone coming into the nhs um is to kind of understand healthcare and similar to what carl was saying about communication you've got to you've got to be able to communicate understand what is happening in the hospital understand the processes and i think because if you don't have that understanding. It's very difficult to know what clinicians need, uh, service managers need, etc. We, you know, we, we need to understand why, um, the patient flow, for example, so the length of stay of each patient, why, why is it important? Why is it important? Well, it's important because we, we need people out of the beds as soon as possible because they get better, uh, quicker at home. Um, obviously we need beds for all the patients. Um, uh, yeah exception.
0: Thank you David. Um, Carl before we come back round to you I was going to come to Jo for her first um, kind of answer and then we'll come back round. All
3: right so Jo over to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks um, I think I, it's interesting I found this question really interesting um, and I think it's really important that you think about the why you would want to work for the NHS and actually in a in, a, in such a in know in a department or a section or um, that's so varied I mean the different types of roles that are available within sort of data and digital is phenomenal um, and I know it varies between provider and organisation but there is um, such a varied skill set that there is something for everybody. Um, Pick it up on Carl's point actually because the things that I was thinking about sort of qualities that you would need Um, that you would want to encourage is that natural curiosity and the ability to show initiative and enthusiasm. Um, It's obviously important that your organisation matches your values um, because that's really important. Um, I've been lucky that I've worked for an organisation where that fit is absolutely what I want. So I've been lucky that I've worked in a variety of roles. So I started as an information analyst um, with a degree in applied statistics for business, um, which um, really didn't equip me for... Um, the the job if you like but actually my soft skills absolutely did so moving sort of through my career those are the bits that I've developed and the technical skills I've developed along the way so moving from data quality and clinical coding, but then going to implement an EPR system um, sort of 15 years ago. And I'm now lucky enough to be part of that implementation this summer in July. Our trust is going live with a new EPR called Cetor which I'm really, really excited about, because that's absolutely clinically based and clinically developed. Um, and that collaboration work between data and digital and clinical services is really key. Out. Um, I'll probably sound quite passionate, but I really do love my job and I really want to make a difference and help clinical staff to understand data and support quality patient care. Um, And I love working with like-minded analysts who have that natural curiosity and are also passionate about making a difference because we are a support services to clinical colleagues. Um, And I feel lucky in my role that we've got clinical and operational colleagues that want to engage with me and the team to make dashboards and information that make data real to them, that help them care for the patients. And like uh, David said, the data has become more important, um, and learning the clinical processes that are underneath that data um, and how they interact with um, clinical services is just um, such—it's a gift, really, um, being able to do that. So, yeah,
0: thank you, Joe. That's really lovely to hear. (laughs) Really lovely. Um, Carl, come round to you next.
3: I just want to pick up on a, on a point David
1: made around universities. I don't think it, it was relevant to the point, but I think one thing I'm particularly passionate about is recruiting from from areas that aren't necessarily kind of well um, well represented within traditional informatics teams. And the university bit is a key thing for me. Um, the talk about move to kind of values based recruiting in the NHS. I'm not quite sure what that means, um, but I'm hoping that, that there will be some potential there for us to move away from everybody has to have a degree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very clear when whenever we put jobs out that it's a degree-level education or relevant experience. And even if you have never worked in informatics before, there is tons of information out there, and there's tons of free resources around coding, and there's tons of data out there for you to really demonstrate what you can do. One of the best interview experiences I had, um, and it wasn't one of my own because I'm terrible at being interviewed, um, was that somebody actually presented something. So there was a question around, oh, tell us about an analytical product you've developed. Um, they talked around kind of the problem, but then they actually showed it to us and this is somebody who didn't have much experience within any experience within the NHS and very little experience of kind of informatics. Um, but the fact that they thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to actually bring something with me. And it's even easier now The most interviews are over, over Teams or Zoom to actually demonstrate something that you've built. Um, and that for me was, was a really, really positive experience. Um, just to pick up on um, Joe's point as well um, around the people's kind of the reason why people do the jobs i talked a bit about kind of how my career rambled around a bit but fairly grandiosely i thought i could help more people with informatics than i would do if i was working clinically um i'm not so i've got there yet but i'm, I'm still trying um and, and i'm sure i'll get there eventually but it's, it's really important that you do have that kind of that that drive and that commitment to make things better and that doesn't necessarily mean that you need experience within the nhs because we've all had experiences with the nhs haven't we we can all build on those experiences to make things better for other people
0: Yeah, thanks, Carl. So David will come round to you next. Then Joe will get you to have have the final say on this question, if that's all right.
2: So just picking up on on both Carl and Joe's points about values, um, and it is important for people coming to the NHS to have a patient centric mindset. But it's sometimes important in our roles to have um, the kind of financial aspect. (laughs) Which is sometimes quite difficult. Um, So, because, you know, the activity that that we perform needs to be reimbursed. And if we didn't have that and we didn't report it correctly, we wouldn't get the money back. So, uh, although it is patient centric primarily, um, you have got to think about the the financial side of it as well and where we can save, uh, especially in, in this current climate. Uh, where we can save money wherever possible. In
3: um, fact, thank you, David and Joe. Yeah, a couple of things actually, just picking up on David's point about cost. And I think it's probably the thing that you don't come into this job for the money um, because, you know, that's that, that, that a brutal fact. You do it because, you know, you've got some other motivating factors like um, wanting to make a difference. Um, picking up on the point around um, the degree um, and actually encouraging more college. apprenticeship style kind of learning and getting people in um uh from that kind of age group as well and kind of building a new workforce and and kind of you know just thinking about other options that you've got instead of just that traditional um degree kind of process so
0: thank you joe perfect all right so we're at a little bit of a crossroads now we've got 10 minutes left two questions um it's entirely up to you guys we can do kind of like both of them and give like shorter answers to each or would you prefer to just pick one or the other over to the group
1: i wasn't a massive fan of that first question i gave i think the second question
3: <laughs> the biggest mistake <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah okay we'll go in we'll go in with the the final question um which i think is a really nice kind of way to round things off
1: um so it is you, so? <laughs> you like to start um, what's, what's been your biggest mistake in your career so? <laughs>
0: i'm gonna stay out of this one <laughs> uh, okay so, yeah so a qu- full question what has the what has been the biggest mistake you've made in your career so far and what would you tell your younger self if you had the chance so um
2: david do you want to go first yeah no problem uh so uh, i'm not sure it's a mistake uh <laughs> but what I would I would do in if I had to relive my life again uh, from day one is spend more time in the clinical environment. What I didn't do is no. do that, um, and I um, and it's very difficult for a non NHS person to come into the NHS and just get straight stuck in. The NHS is so complex and it's got so many different processes. It's quite tough in what we do, and because we have to, it's okay for service managers maybe to know their service, but we have to know every service. <laughs> we have to know inpatient, outpatient, waiting list, A and E. We have to know them all. Um, so that is a challenge. So I think going and spending time with the different services. It doesn't have to be all clinical either. It could be um, maybe uh, some of the back office. Um, such as clinical coding or, or audit, or uh, but just a few examples of in the past, um, what where I've or we've made a um the a differences in infection control. I went and spent some time in infection control. Um, I realized that some of the processes weren't as good as they could be. I went back and we created an infection control report that um allowed uh, them to to see if the, if any one patient had uh an infection or something wrong with them um they were able to see all the wards and every single person that they'd become they'd been in contact with uh that was obviously especially helpful when we got to covid <laughs> um which then it was used uh a lot as you can imagine and another um, example of a back office one where um one of the members of, uh, of my team he has recently gone and automated the clinical coding, um, the allocation of notes. So instead of them taking half a day a week or whatever to uh, it on paper or Excel, working out who needs to do what notes, um, it's now a click of a button. And that button can be pressed as many times a week as the coding managers need it to be. And it will just, it will reallocate all all boarding so yeah that's, thanks david that's another another example of spending time uh in in, in cloud environments
0: thank you um joe we'll come around to you next on this one yeah i feel like i'm
3: going to get some eye rolls here but <laughs> <laughs> um i don't consider that i've made any mistakes in my career and that's not saying that i'm perfect but i don't look at things as mistakes i think it's just opportunities to grow isn't it um but, yeah, I, I have quite a reflective kind of nature anyway. So if I think, you know, could I have done things better? Um, quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, it's just there's not sort of one thing that would stick in my mind. Um, and if I was going to give myself, my younger self, um, some advice, it was absolutely continue to do things that are outside your comfort zone because that's how you um, grow. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you, Jeremy. and Carl. To round off the final question. Um
1: I think I learned far too late on in my career that applying for jobs is a two-way process, and I probably took roles that um, I've, the, the organisation wasn't quite the best fit for me. So picking up on Joe's point, and I promised to have swap notes. Um, I, I think that organisational fit is very much a, it's, it's a two-way thing, and just because you've been successfully kind of appointed to a role doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good fit for you. Yeah, I, I, I wish I had. Um, if I was to be to myself, I wish I had my sense of self-worth now, my, my belief in 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 myself, joined up with the kind of the audacity view because I think that will be a really powerful combination. Hmm. But whether it's evolutionary on purpose that you kind of you develop that sense of worth after you've kind of passed yeah. a certain age or not, I'm not I'm not I'm not quite sure. But certainly there were roles I've taken that, that weren't very good fits for me, and I probably knew that at the time if I'm honest with you. But um, I I, I saw the job because I was just grateful for a job at that point, but um. But I guess going back to Joe's point, it, it's got me where I am, my my fairly circuitous mm. route. Um and that's something to be grateful for, isn't it?
0: Perfect. Okay, great. Well, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you. I think I uh, hopefully you've all really enjoyed the discussion. Um once again, today's guests have been Carl, David and Joe. Um massive thank you to kind of all our guests and all the listeners of the podcast. But no, it's been it's been great. So thank you very much, guys.